leads the AI astray on some matter of crucial importance. Such an AI might be akin to a quick-witted person whose worldview is predicated on a false dogma, held to with absolute conviction, who consequently tilts at windmills and gives his all in pursuit of fantastical or harmful objectives. Certain kinds of subtle difference in an AI's prior could turn out to make a drastic difference to how it behaves. For example, an AI might be given a prior that assigns zero probability to the universe being infinite. No matter how much astronomical evidence it accrues to the contrary, such an AI would stubbornly reject any cosmological theory that implied an infinite universe, and it might make foolish choices as a result. Or an AI might be given a prior that assigns a zero probability to the universe not being Turing computable. This is in fact a common feature of many of the priors discussed in the literature, including the Kolmogorov complexity prior mentioned in Chapter 1. Again, with poorly understood consequences if the embedded assumption, known as the Church-Turing thesis, should turn out to be false. An AI could also end up with a prior that makes strong metaphysical commitments of one sort or another, for instance, by ruling out a priori the possibility that any strong form of mind-body dualism could be true, or the possibility that there are irreducible moral facts. If any of those commitments is mistaken, the AI might seek to realize its final goals in ways that we would regard as perverse instantiations. Yet there is no obvious reason why such an AI, despite being fundamentally wrong about one important matter, could not be sufficiently instrumentally effective to secure a decisive strategic advantage. Anthropics, the study of how to make inferences from indexical information in the presence of observation selection effects, is another area where the choice of epistemic axioms could prove pivotal. We might reasonably doubt our ability to resolve all foundational issues in epistemology in time for the construction of the first seed AI. We may, therefore, consider taking an indirect approach to specifying the AI's epistemology. This would raise many of the same issues as taking an indirect approach to specifying its decision theory. In the case of epistemology, however, there may be greater hope of benign convergence with any of a wide class of epistemologies providing an adequate foundation for safe and effective AI and ultimately yielding similar doxastic results. The reason for this is that sufficiently abundant empirical evidence and analysis would tend to wash out any moderate differences in prior expectations. A good aim would be to endow the AI with fundamental epistemological principles that match those governing our own thinking. Any AI diverging from this ideal is an AI that we would judge to be reasoning incorrectly if we consistently applied our own standards. Of course, this applies only to our fundamental epistemological principles. Non-fundamental principles should be continuously created and revised by the seed AI itself as it develops its understanding of the world. The point of superintelligence is not to pander to human preconceptions, but to make mincemeat out of our ignorance and folly. Ratification The final item in our list of design choices is ratification. Should the AI's plans be subjected to human review before being put into effect? For an oracle, this question is implicitly answered in the affirmative. The oracle outputs information. Human reviewers choose whether and how to act upon it. For genies, sovereigns, and tool AIs, however, the question of whether to use some form of ratification remains open. To illustrate how ratification might work, consider an AI intended to function as a sovereign implementing humanity's CEV. Instead of launching this AI directly, imagine that we first built an oracle AI for the sole purpose of answering questions about what the sovereign AI would do. As earlier chapters revealed, there are risks in creating a superintelligent oracle, such as risks of mind crime or infrastructure profusion. 
but for purposes of this example, let us assume that the Oracle AI has been successfully implemented in a way that avoided these pitfalls. We thus have an Oracle AI that offers us its best guesses about the consequences of running some piece of code intended to implement humanity's CEV. The Oracle may not be able to predict in detail what would happen, but its predictions are likely to be better than our own. If it were impossible even for a superintelligence to predict anything about what the code would do, we would be crazy to run it. So the Oracle ponders for a while and then presents its forecast. To make the answer intelligible, the Oracle may offer the operator a range of tools with which to explore various features of the predicted outcome. The Oracle could show pictures of what the future looks like and provide statistics about the number of sentient beings that will exist at different times, along with average, peak, and lowest levels of well-being. It could offer intimate biographies of several randomly selected individuals, perhaps imaginary people selected to be probably representative. It could highlight aspects of the future that the operator might not have thought of inquiring about, but which would be regarded as pertinent once pointed out. Being able to preview the outcome in this manner has obvious advantages. The preview could reveal the consequences of an error in a planned sovereign's design specifications or source code. If the crystal ball shows a ruined future, we could scrap the code for the planned sovereign AI and try something else. A strong case could be made that we should familiarize ourselves with the concrete ramifications of an option before committing to it, especially when the entire future of the race is on the line. What is perhaps less obvious is that ratification also has potentially significant disadvantages. The ironic quality of CEV might be undermined if opposing factions, instead of submitting to the arbitration of superior wisdom in confident expectation of being vindicated, could see in advance what the verdict would be. A proponent of the morality-based approach might worry that the sponsor's resolve would collapse if all the sacrifices required by the morally optimal were to be revealed, and we might all have reason to prefer a future that holds some surprises, some dissonance, some wildness, some opportunities for self-overcoming, a future whose contours are not too smugly tailored to present preconceptions, but provide some give for dramatic movement and unplanned growth. We might be less likely to take such an expansive view if we could cherry-pick every detail of the future, sending back to the drawing board any draft that does not fully conform to our fancy at that moment. The issue of sponsor ratification is therefore less clear-cut than it might initially seem. Nevertheless, on balance, it would seem prudent to take advantage of an opportunity to preview if that functionality is available. But rather than letting the reviewer fine-tune every aspect of the outcome, we might give her a simple veto, which could be exercised only a few times before the entire project would be aborted. Getting Close Enough The main purpose of ratification would be to reduce the probability of catastrophic error. In general, it seems wise to aim at minimizing the risk of catastrophic error, rather than at maximizing the chance of every detail being fully optimized. There are two reasons for this. First, humanity's cosmic endowment is astronomically large. There is plenty to go around, even if our process involves some waste or accepts some unnecessary constraints. Second, there is a hope that if we but get the initial conditions for the intelligence explosion approximately right, then the resulting superintelligence may eventually home in on and precisely hit our ultimate objectives. The important thing is to land in the right attractor basin. With regard to epistemology, it is plausible that a wide range of priors will ultimately converge to very similar posteriors when computed by a superintelligence and conditionalized on a realistic amount of data. We therefore need not worry about getting the epistemology exactly right. We must just avoid giving the AI a prior that is so extreme as to render the AI incapable of learning vital truths 
even with the benefit of copious experience and analysis. With regard to decision theory, the risk of irrecoverable error seems larger. We might still hope to directly specify a decision theory that is good enough. A superintelligent AI could switch to a new decision theory at any time. However, if it starts out with a sufficiently wrong decision theory, it may not see the reason to switch. Even if an agent comes to see the benefits of having a different decision theory, the realization might come too late. For example, an agent designed to refuse blackmail might enjoy the benefit of deterring would-be extortionists. For this reason, blackmailable agents might do well to proactively adopt a non-exploitable decision theory. Yet once a blackmailable agent receives the threat and regards it as credible, the damage is done. Given an adequate epistemology and decision theory, we could try to design the system to implement CEV or some other indirectly specified goal content. Again, there is hope of convergence. The different ways of implementing a CEV-like dynamic would lead to the same utopian outcome. Short of such convergence, we may still hope that many of the different possible outcomes are good enough to count as existential success. It is not necessary for us to create a highly optimized design. Rather, our focus should be on creating a highly reliable design, one that can be trusted to retain enough sanity to recognize its own failings. An imperfect superintelligence, whose fundamentals are sound, would gradually repair itself, and having done so, it would exert as much beneficial optimization power on the world as if it had been perfect from the outset. Chapter 14 The Strategic Picture It is now time to consider the challenge of superintelligence in a broader context. We would like to orient ourselves in the strategic landscape sufficiently to know at least which general direction we should be heading. This, it turns out, is not at all easy. Here in the penultimate chapter, we introduce some general analytical concepts that help us think about long-term science and technology policy issues. We then apply them to the issue of machine intelligence. It can be illuminating to make a rough distinction between two different normative stances from which a proposed policy may be evaluated. The person-affecting perspective asks whether a proposed change would be in our interest. That is to say, whether it would, on balance and in expectation, be in the interest of those morally considerable creatures who either already exist or will come into existence independently of whether the proposed change occurs or not. The impersonal perspective, in contrast, gives no special consideration to currently existing people or to those who will come to exist independently of whether the proposed change occurs. Instead, it counts everybody equally, independently of their temporal location. The impersonal perspective sees great value in bringing new people into existence, provided they have lives worth living. The more happy lives created, the better. This distinction, although it barely hints at the moral complexities associated with a machine intelligence revolution, can be useful in a first-cut analysis. Here, we will first examine matters from the impersonal perspective. We will later see what changes if person-affecting considerations are given weight in our deliberations. Science and Technology Strategy Before we zoom in on issues specific to machine superintelligence, we must introduce some strategic concepts and considerations that pertain to scientific and technological development more generally. Differential Technological Development Suppose that a policymaker proposes to cut funding for a certain research field out of concern for the risks or long-term consequences of some hypothetical technology that might eventually grow from its soil. She can then expect a howl of opposition from the research community. Scientists and their public advocates often say that it is futile to try to control the evolution of technology by blocking research. 
If some technology is feasible, the argument goes, it will be developed regardless of any particular policymaker's scruples about speculative future risks. Indeed, the more powerful the capabilities that a line of development promises to produce, the surer we can be that somebody, somewhere, will be motivated to pursue it. Funding cuts will not stop progress or forestall its concomitant dangers. Interestingly, this futility objection is almost never raised when a policymaker proposes to increase funding to some area of research, even though the argument would seem to cut both ways. One rarely hears indignant voices protest, Please do not increase our funding. Rather, make some cuts. Researchers in other countries will surely pick up the slack. The same work will get done anyway. Don't squander the public's treasure on domestic scientific research. What accounts for this apparent double-think? One plausible explanation, of course, is that members of the research community have a self-serving bias which leads us to believe that research is always good and tempts us to embrace almost any argument that supports our demand for more funding. However, it is also possible that the double standard can be justified in terms of national self-interest. Suppose that the development of a technology has two effects giving a small benefit B to its inventors and the country that sponsors them, while imposing an aggregately larger harm, H, which could be a risk externality, on everybody. Even somebody who is largely altruistic might then choose to develop the overall harmful technology. They might reason that the harm, H, will result no matter what they do, since, if they refrain, somebody else will develop the technology anyway and given that total welfare cannot be affected, they might as well grab the benefit B for themselves and their nation. Unfortunately, there will soon be a device that will destroy the world. Fortunately, we got the grant to build it. Whatever the explanation for the futility objection's appeal, it fails to show that there is in general no impersonal reason for trying to steer technological development. It fails, even if we concede the motivating idea that with continued scientific and technological development efforts, all relevant technologies will eventually be developed. That is, even if we concede the following. Technological Completion Conjecture If scientific and technological development efforts do not effectively cease, then all important basic capabilities that could be obtained through some possible technology will be obtained. There are at least two reasons why the technological completion conjecture does not imply the futility objection. First, the antecedent might not hold, because it is not in fact a given that scientific and technological development efforts will not effectively cease before the attainment of technological maturity. This reservation is especially pertinent in a context that involves existential risk. Second, even if we could be certain that all important basic capabilities that could be obtained through some possible technology will be obtained, it could still make sense to attempt to influence the direction of technological research. What matters is not only whether a technology is developed, but also when it is developed, by whom, and in what context. These circumstances of birth of a new technology, which shape its impact, can be affected by turning funding spigots on or off and by wielding other policy instruments. These reflections suggest a principle that would have us attend to the relative speed with which different technologies are developed. The Principle of Differential Technological Development Retard the development of dangerous and harmful technologies, especially ones that raise the level of existential risk, and accelerate the development of beneficial technologies, especially those that reduce the existential risks posed by nature or by other technologies. A policy could thus be evaluated on the basis of how much of a differential advantage it gives to desired forms of technological development over undesired forms. Preferred Order of Arrival Some technologies have an ambivalent effect on existential risks, increasing some existential risks 
while decreasing others. Superintelligence is one such technology. We have seen in earlier chapters that the introduction of machine superintelligence would create a substantial existential risk, but it would reduce many other existential risks. Risks from nature, such as asteroid impacts, supervolcanoes and natural pandemics, would be virtually eliminated, since superintelligence could deploy countermeasures against most such hazards, or at least demote them to the non-existential category, for instance via space colonization. These existential risks from nature are comparatively small over the relevant timescales, but superintelligence would also eliminate or reduce many anthropogenic risks. In particular, it would reduce risks of accidental destruction, including risk of accidents related to new technologies. Being generally more capable than humans, a superintelligence would be less likely to make mistakes, and more likely to recognize when precautions are needed, and to implement precautions competently. A well-constructed superintelligence might sometimes take a risk, but only when doing so is wise. Furthermore, at least in scenarios where the superintelligence forms a singleton, many non-accidental anthropogenic existential risks deriving from global coordination problems would be eliminated. These include risks of wars, technology races, undesirable forms of competition and evolution, and tragedies of the commons. Since substantial peril would be associated with human beings developing synthetic biology, molecular nanotechnology, climate engineering, instruments for biomedical enhancement, and neuropsychological manipulation, tools for social control that may facilitate totalitarianism or tyranny, and other technologies as yet unimagined, eliminating these types of risk would be a great boon. An argument could therefore be mounted that earlier arrival dates of superintelligence are preferable. However, if risks from nature and from other hazards unrelated to future technology are small, then this argument could be refined. What matters is that we get superintelligence before other dangerous technologies, such as advanced nanotechnology. Whether it happens sooner or later may not be so important from an impersonal perspective, so long as the order of arrival is right. The ground for preferring superintelligence to come before other potentially dangerous technologies, such as nanotechnology, is that superintelligence would reduce the existential risks from nanotechnology, but not vice versa. Hence, if we create superintelligence first, we will face only those existential risks that are associated with superintelligence, whereas if we create nanotechnology first, we will face the risks of nanotechnology, and then, additionally, the risks of superintelligence. Even if the existential risks from superintelligence are very large, and even if superintelligence is the riskiest of all technologies, there could thus be a case for hastening its arrival. These sooner-is-better arguments, however, presuppose that the riskiness of creating superintelligence is the same regardless of when it is created. If, instead, its riskiness declines over time, it might be better to delay the machine intelligence revolution. While a later arrival would leave more time for other existential catastrophes to intercede, it could still be preferable to slow the development of superintelligence. This would be especially plausible if the existential risks associated with superintelligence are much larger than those associated with other disruptive technologies. There are several quite strong reasons to believe that the riskiness of an intelligence explosion will decline significantly over a multi-decadal time frame. One reason is that a later date leaves more time for the development of solutions to the control problem. The control problem has only recently been recognized, and most of the current best ideas for how to approach it were discovered only within the past decade or so, and in several cases during the time that this book was being written. It is plausible 
that the state of the art will advance greatly over the next several decades, and if the problem turns out to be very difficult, a significant rate of progress might continue for a century or more. The longer it takes for superintelligence to arrive, the more such progress will have been made when it does. This is an important consideration in favor of later arrival dates, and a very strong consideration against extremely early arrival dates. Another reason why superintelligence later might be safer is that this would allow more time for various beneficial background trends of human civilization to play themselves out. How much weight one attaches to this consideration will depend on how optimistic one is about these trends. An optimist could certainly point to a number of encouraging indicators and hopeful possibilities. People might learn to get along better, leading to reductions in violence, war, and cruelty. And global coordination and the scope of political integration might increase, making it easier to escape undesirable technology races. More on this below. And to work out an arrangement whereby the hoped-for gains from an intelligence explosion would be widely shared. There appear to be long-term historical trends in these directions. Further, an optimist could expect that the sanity level of humanity will rise over the course of this century, that prejudices will, on balance, recede, that insights will accumulate, and that people will become more accustomed to thinking about abstract future probabilities and global risks. With luck, we could see a general uplift of epistemic standards in both individual and collective cognition. Again, there are trends pushing in these directions. Scientific progress means that more will be known. Economic growth may give a greater portion of the world's population adequate nutrition, particularly during the early years of life that are important for brain development and access to quality education. Advances in information technology will make it easier to find, integrate, evaluate, and communicate data and ideas. Furthermore, by the century's end, humanity will have made an additional hundred years' worth of mistakes from which something might have been learned. Many potential developments are ambivalent in the above-mentioned sense, increasing some existential risks and decreasing others. For example, advances in surveillance, data mining, lie detection, biometrics, and psychological or neurochemical means of manipulating beliefs and desires could reduce some existential risks by making it easier to coordinate internationally or to suppress terrorists and renegades at home. These same advances, however, might also increase some existential risks by amplifying undesirable social dynamics or by enabling the formation of permanently stable totalitarian regimes. One important frontier is the enhancement of biological cognition, such as through genetic selection. When we discussed this in chapters 2 and 3, we concluded that the most radical forms of superintelligence would be more likely to arise in the form of machine intelligence. That claim is consistent with cognitive enhancement playing an important role in the lead-up to and creation of machine superintelligence. Cognitive enhancement might seem obviously risk-reducing. The smarter the people working on the control problem, the more likely they are to find a solution. However, cognitive enhancement could also hasten the development of machine intelligence, thus reducing the time available to work on the problem. Cognitive enhancement would also have many other relevant consequences. These issues deserve a closer look. Most of the following remarks about cognitive enhancement apply equally to non-biological means of increasing our individual or collective epistemic effectiveness. Rates of change and cognitive enhancement An increase in either the mean or the upper range of human intellectual ability would likely accelerate technological progress across the board, including progress toward various forms of machine intelligence, progress on the control problem, and progress on a wide swathe of other technical and economic objectives. What will be the net effect of such acceleration? 
Consider the limiting case of a universal accelerator, an imaginary intervention that accelerates literally everything. The action of such a universal accelerator would correspond merely to an arbitrary rescaling of the time metric, producing no qualitative change in observed outcomes. If we are to make sense of the idea that cognitive enhancement might generally speed things up, we clearly need some other concept than that of universal acceleration. A more promising approach is to focus on how cognitive enhancement might increase the rate of change in one type of process relative to the rate of change in some other type of process. Such differential acceleration could affect a system's dynamics. Thus, consider the following concept. Macrostructural Development Accelerator A lever that accelerates the rate at which macrostructural features of the human condition develop, while leaving unchanged the rate at which micro-level human affairs unfold. Imagine pulling this lever in the decelerating direction. A brake pad is lowered onto the great wheel of world history. Sparks fly, and metal screeches. After the wheel has settled into a more leisurely pace, the result is a world in which technological innovation occurs more slowly, and in which fundamental or globally significant change in political structure and culture happens less frequently and less abruptly. A greater number of generations come and go before one era gives way to another. During the course of a lifespan, a person sees little change in the basic structure of the human condition. For most of our species' existence, macrostructural development was slower than it is now. Fifty thousand years ago, an entire millennium might have elapsed without a single significant technological invention, without any noticeable increase in human knowledge and understanding, and without any globally meaningful political change. On a micro-level, however, the kaleidoscope of human affairs churned at a reasonable rate, with births, deaths, and other personally and locally significant events. The average person's day might have been more action-packed in the Pleistocene than it is today. If you came upon a magic lever that would let you change the rate of macrostructural development, what should you do? Ought you to accelerate, decelerate, or leave things as they are? Assuming the impersonal standpoint, this question requires us to consider the effects on existential risk. Let us distinguish between two kinds of risk state risks, and step risks. A state risk is one that is associated with being in a certain state, and the total amount of state risk to which a system is exposed is a direct function of how long the system remains in that state. Risks from nature are typically state risks. The longer we remain exposed, the greater the chance that we will get struck by an asteroid, supervolcanic eruption, gamma ray burst, naturally arising pandemic, or some other slash of the cosmic scythe. Some anthropogenic risks are also state risks. At the level of an individual, the longer a soldier pokes his head up above the parapet, the greater the cumulative chance he will be shot by an enemy sniper. There are anthropogenic state risks at the existential level as well. The longer we live in an internationally anarchic system, the greater the cumulative chance of a thermonuclear Armageddon or of a great war fought with other kinds of weapons of mass destruction, laying waste to civilization. A step risk, by contrast, is a discrete risk associated with some necessary or desirable transition. Once the transition is completed, the risk vanishes. The amount of step risk associated with the transition is usually not a simple function of how long the transition takes. One does not halve the risk of traversing a minefield by running twice as fast. Conditional on a fast takeoff, the creation of superintelligence might be a step risk. There would be a certain risk associated with the takeoff, the magnitude of which would depend on what preparations had been made, but the amount of risk might not depend much on whether the takeoff takes 20 milliseconds or 20 hours. We can then say the following regarding a hypothetical macrostructural development accelerator. Insofar as we are concerned with existential state risks, 
we should favor acceleration, provided we think we have a realistic prospect of making it through to a post-transition era in which any further existential risks are greatly reduced. If it were known that there is some step ahead destined to cause an existential catastrophe, then we ought to reduce the rate of macrostructural development, or even put it in reverse, in order to give more generations a chance to exist before the curtain is rung down. But in fact, it would be overly pessimistic to be so confident that humanity is doomed. At present, the level of existential state risk appears to be relatively low. If we imagine the technological macro-conditions for humanity frozen in their current state, it seems very unlikely that an existential catastrophe would occur on a timescale of, say, a decade. So a delay of one decade, provided it occurred at our current stage of development, or at some other time when state risk is low, would incur only a very minor existential state risk whereas a postponement by one decade of subsequent technological developments might well have a significant beneficial impact on later existential step risks, for example, by allowing more time for preparation. Upshot The main way that the speed of macrostructural development is important is by affecting how well prepared humanity is when the time comes to confront the key step risks. So the question we must ask is how cognitive enhancement and concomitant acceleration of macrostructural development would affect the expected level of preparedness at the critical juncture. Should we prefer a shorter period of preparation with higher intelligence? With higher intelligence, the preparation time could be used more effectively, and the final critical step would be taken by a more intelligent humanity. Or should we prefer to operate with closer to current levels of intelligence? if that gives us more time to prepare. Which option is better depends on the nature of the challenge being prepared for. If the challenge were to solve a problem for which learning from experience is key, then the chronological length of the preparation period might be the determining factor, since time is needed for the requisite experience to accumulate. What would such a challenge look like? One hypothetical example would be a new weapons technology that we could predict would be developed at some point in the future, and that would make it the case that any subsequent war would have, let us say, a one in ten chance of causing an existential catastrophe. If such were the nature of the challenge facing us, then we might wish the rate of macrostructural development to be slow, so that our species would have more time to get its act together before the critical step when the new weapons technology is invented. One could hope that during the grace period secured through the deceleration, our species might learn to avoid war, that international relations around the globe might come to resemble those between the countries of the European Union, which, having fought one another ferociously for centuries, now coexist in peace and relative harmony. The pacification might occur as a result of the gentle edification from various civilizing processes, or through the shock therapy of sub-existential blows, e.g., small nuclear conflagrations, and the recoil and resolve they might engender to finally create the global institutions necessary for the abolishment of interstate wars. If this kind of learning or adjusting would not be much accelerated by increased intelligence, then cognitive enhancement would be undesirable, serving merely to burn the fuse faster. A prospective intelligence explosion, however, may present a challenge of a different kind. The control problem calls for foresight, reasoning, and theoretical insight. It is less clear how increased historical experience would help. Direct experience of the intelligence explosion is not possible until too late, and many features conspire to make the control problem unique and lacking in relevant historical precedent. For these reasons, the amount of time that will elapse before the intelligence explosion may not matter much per se. Perhaps what matters instead is a. the amount of intellectual progress on the control problem achieved by the time of the detonation, and b. the amount of skill and intelligence available at the time to implement the best available solutions.
and to improvise what is missing. That this latter factor should respond positively to cognitive enhancement is obvious. How cognitive enhancement would affect factor A is a somewhat subtler matter. Suppose, as suggested earlier, that cognitive enhancement would be a general macrostructural development accelerator. This would hasten the arrival of the intelligence explosion, thus reducing the amount of time available for preparation and for making progress on the control problem. Normally, this would be a bad thing. However, if the only reason why there is less time available for intellectual progress is that intellectual progress is speeded up, then there need be no net reduction in the amount of intellectual progress that will have taken place by the time the intelligence explosion occurs. At this point, cognitive enhancement might appear to be neutral with respect to factor A. The same intellectual progress that would otherwise have been made prior to the intelligence explosion, including progress on the control problem, still gets made, only compressed within a shorter time interval. In actuality, however, cognitive enhancement may well prove a positive influence on A. One reason why cognitive enhancement might cause more progress to have been made on the control problem by the time the intelligence explosion occurs is that progress on the control problem may be especially contingent on extreme levels of intellectual performance, even more so than the kind of work necessary to create machine intelligence. The role for trial and error and accumulation of experimental results seems quite limited in relation to the control problem, whereas experimental learning will probably play a large role in the development of artificial intelligence or whole-brain emulation. The extent to which time can substitute for wit may therefore vary between tasks in a way that should make cognitive enhancement promote progress on the control problem more than it would promote progress on the problem of how to create machine intelligence. Another reason why cognitive enhancement should differentially promote progress on the control problem is that the very need for such progress is more likely to be appreciated by cognitively more capable societies and individuals. It requires foresight and reasoning to realize why the control problem is important and to make it a priority. It may also require uncommon sagacity to find promising ways of approaching such an unfamiliar problem. From these reflections, we might tentatively conclude that cognitive enhancement is desirable, at least insofar as the focus is on the existential risks of an intelligence explosion. Parallel lines of thinking apply to other existential risks arising from challenges that require foresight and reliable abstract reasoning, as opposed to, e.g., incremental adaptation to experienced changes in the environment or a multi-generational process of cultural maturation and institution building. Technology Couplings Suppose that one thinks that solving the control problem for artificial intelligence is very difficult, but solving it for whole-brain emulations is much easier, and that it would therefore be preferable that machine intelligence be reached via the whole-brain emulation path. We will return later to the question of whether whole-brain emulation would be safer than artificial intelligence. But for now, we want to make the point that even if we accept this premise, it would not follow that we ought to promote whole-brain emulation technology. One reason, discussed earlier, is that a later arrival of superintelligence may be preferable in order to allow more time for progress on the control problem and for other favorable background trends to culminate. And thus, if one were confident that whole-brain emulation would precede AI anyway, it would be counterproductive to further hasten the arrival of whole-brain emulation. But even if it were the case that it would be best for whole-brain emulation to arrive as soon as possible, it still would not follow that we ought to favor progress toward whole-brain emulation. For it is possible that progress toward whole-brain emulation will not yield whole-brain emulation. It may instead yield neuromorphic artificial intelligence. Forms of AI that mimic some aspects of cortical organization but do not replicate neuronal functionality with sufficient fidelity to constitute a proper emulation. If, as there is reason to believe, 
Such neuromorphic AI is worse than the kind of AI that would otherwise have been built. And if by promoting whole-brain emulation, we would make neuromorphic AI arrive first, then our pursuit of the supposed best outcome, whole-brain emulation, would lead to the worst outcome, neuromorphic AI. Whereas, if we had pursued the second-best outcome, synthetic AI, we might actually have attained the second-best, synthetic AI. We have just described an hypothetical instance of what we might term a technology coupling. This refers to a condition in which two technologies have a predictable timing relationship, such that developing one of the technologies has a robust tendency to lead to the development of the other, either as a necessary precursor or as an obvious and irresistible application or subsequent step. Technology couplings must be taken into account when we use the principle of differential technological development. It is no good accelerating the development of a desirable technology Y if the only way of getting Y is by developing an extremely undesirable precursor technology X, or if getting Y would immediately produce an extremely undesirable related technology Z. Before you marry your sweetheart, consider the prospective in-laws. In the case of whole-brain emulation, the degree of technology coupling is debatable. We noted in Chapter 2 that while whole-brain emulation would require massive progress in various enabling technologies, it might not require any major new theoretical insight. In particular, it does not require that we understand how human cognition works, only that we know how to build computational models of small parts of the brain, such as different species of neuron. Nevertheless, in the course of developing the ability to emulate human brains, a wealth of neuroanatomical data would be collected, and functional models of cortical networks would surely be greatly improved. Such progress would seem to have a good chance of enabling neuromorphic AI before full-blown whole-brain emulation. Historically, there are quite a few examples of AI techniques gleaned from neuroscience or biology. For example, the McCulloch-Pitts neuron, perceptrons, and other artificial neurons and neural networks, inspired by neuroanatomical work. Reinforcement learning, inspired by behaviorist psychology. Genetic algorithms, inspired by evolution theory. Subsumption architectures and perceptual hierarchies, inspired by cognitive science theories about motor planning and sensory perception. Artificial immune systems, inspired by theoretical immunology. Swarm intelligence, inspired by the ecology of insect colonies and other self-organizing systems. And reactive and behavior-based control in robotics, inspired by the study of animal locomotion. Perhaps more significantly, there are plenty of important AI-relevant questions that could potentially be answered through further study of the brain. For example, how does the brain store structured representations in working memory and long-term memory? How is the binding problem solved? What is the neural code? How are concepts represented? Is there some standard unit of cortical processing machinery, such as the cortical column? And if so, how is it wired, and how does its functionality depend on the wiring? How can such columns be linked up, and how can they learn? We will shortly have more to say about the relative danger of whole-brain emulation, neuromorphic AI, and synthetic AI. But we can already flag another important technology coupling, that between whole-brain emulation and AI. Even if a push toward whole-brain emulation actually resulted in whole-brain emulation, as opposed to neuromorphic AI, and even if the arrival of whole-brain emulation could be safely handled, a further risk would still remain. The risk associated with a second transition, a transition from whole-brain emulation to AI, which is an ultimately more powerful form of machine intelligence. There are many other technology couplings which could be considered in a more comprehensive analysis. For instance, a push toward whole-brain emulation 
would boost neuroscience progress more generally. That might produce various effects, such as faster progress toward lie detection, neuropsychological manipulation techniques, cognitive enhancement, and assorted medical advances. Likewise, a push toward cognitive enhancement might, depending on the specific path pursued, create spillovers such as faster development of genetic selection and genetic engineering methods, not only for enhancing cognition, but for modifying other traits as well. Second Guessing We encounter another layer of strategic complexity if we take into account that there is no perfectly benevolent, rational, and unified world controller who simply implements what has been discovered to be the best option. Any abstract point about what should be done must be embodied in the form of a concrete message which has entered into the arena of rhetorical and political reality. There, it will be ignored, misunderstood, distorted, or appropriated for various conflicting purposes. It will bounce around like a pinball, causing actions and reactions, ushering in a cascade of consequences, the upshot of which need bear no straightforward relationship to the intentions of the original sender. A sophisticated operator might try to anticipate these kinds of effect. Consider, for example, the following argument template for proceeding with research to develop a dangerous technology X. One argument fitting this template can be found in the writings of Eric Drexler. In Drexler's case, X equals molecular nanotechnology. 1. The risks of X are great. 2. Reducing these risks will require a period of serious preparation. 3. Serious preparation will begin only once the prospect of X is taken seriously by broad sectors of society. 4. Broad sectors of society will take the prospect of X seriously only once a large research effort to develop X is underway. 5. The earlier a serious research effort is initiated, the longer it will take to deliver X, because it starts from a lower level of pre-existing enabling technologies. 6. Therefore, the earlier a serious research effort is initiated, the longer the period during which serious preparation will be taking place, and the greater the reduction of the risks. 7. Therefore, a serious research effort toward X should be initiated immediately. What initially looks like a reason for going slow or stopping, the risks of X being great, ends up, on this line of thinking, as a reason for the opposite conclusion. A related type of argument is that we ought, rather callously, to welcome small and medium-scale catastrophes on grounds that they make us aware of our vulnerabilities and spur us into taking precautions that reduce the probability of an existential catastrophe. The idea is that a small or medium-scale catastrophe acts like an inoculation, challenging civilization with a relatively survivable form of a threat and stimulating an immune response that readies the world to deal with the existential variety of the threat. These shock em into reacting arguments advocate letting something bad happen in the hope that it will galvanize a public reaction. We mention them here not to endorse them, but as a way to introduce the idea of what we will term second-guessing arguments. Such arguments maintain that by treating others as irrational and playing to their biases and misconceptions, it is possible to elicit a response from them that is more competent than if a case had been presented honestly and forthrightly to their rational faculties. It may seem unfeasibly difficult to use the kind of stratagems recommended by second-guessing arguments to achieve long-term global goals. How could anybody predict the final course of a message after it has been jolted hither and thither in the pinball machine of public discourse? Doing so would seem to require predicting the rhetorical effects on myriad constituents, with varied idiosyncrasies and fluctuating levels of influence over long periods of time during which the system may be perturbed by unanticipated events from the outside, while its topology is also undergoing a continuous endogenous reorganization. Surely an impossible task. 
However, it may not be necessary to make detailed predictions about the system's entire future trajectory in order to identify an intervention that can be reasonably expected to increase the chances of a certain long-term outcome. One might, for example, consider only the relatively near-term and predictable effects in a detailed way, selecting an action that does well in regard to those, while modeling the system's behavior beyond the predictability horizon as a random walk. There may, however, be a moral case for de-emphasizing or refraining from second-guessing moves. Trying to outwit one another looks like a zero-sum game, or negative sum, when one considers the time and energy that would be dissipated by the practice, as well as the likelihood that it would make it generally harder for anybody to discover what others truly think and to be trusted when expressing their own opinions. A full-throttle deployment of the practices of strategic communication would kill candor and leave truth bereft to fend for herself in the backstabbing night of political bogies. Pathways and Enablers Should we celebrate advances in computer hardware? What about advances on the path toward whole-brain emulation? We will look at these two questions in turn. Effects of hardware progress. Faster computers make it easier to create machine intelligence. One effect of accelerating progress in hardware, therefore, is to hasten the arrival of machine intelligence. As discussed earlier, this is probably a bad thing from the impersonal perspective, since it reduces the amount of time available for solving the control problem and for humanity to reach a more mature stage of civilization. The case is not a slam dunk, though. Since superintelligence would eliminate many other existential risks, there could be reason to prefer earlier development if the level of these other existential risks were very high. Hastening or delaying the onset of the intelligence explosion is not the only channel to which the rate of hardware progress can affect existential risk. Another channel is that hardware can to some extent substitute for software. Thus, better hardware reduces the minimum skill required to code a seed AI. Fast computers might also encourage the use of approaches that rely more heavily on brute force techniques, such as genetic algorithms and other generate-evaluate-discard methods, and less on techniques that require deep understanding to use. If brute force techniques lend themselves to more anarchic or imprecise system designs, where the control problem is harder to solve than in more precisely engineered and theoretically controlled systems, this would be another way in which faster computers would increase the existential risk. Another consideration is that rapid hardware progress increases the likelihood of a fast takeoff. The more rapidly the state-of-the-art advances in the semiconductor industry, the fewer the person hours of programmers' time spent exploiting the capabilities of computers at any given performance level. This means that an intelligence explosion is less likely to be initiated at the lowest level of hardware performance at which it is feasible. An intelligence explosion is thus more likely to be initiated when hardware has advanced significantly beyond the minimum level at which the eventually successful programming approach could first have succeeded. There is then a hardware overhang when the takeoff eventually does occur. As we saw in Chapter 4, hardware overhang is one of the main factors that reduce recalcitrance during the takeoff. Rapid hardware progress, therefore, will tend to make the transition to superintelligence faster and more explosive. A faster takeoff via a hardware overhang can affect the risks of the transition in several ways. The most obvious is that a faster takeoff offers less opportunity to respond and make adjustments whilst the transition is in progress, which would tend to increase risk. A related consideration is that a hardware overhang would reduce the chances that a dangerously self-improving seed AI could be contained by limiting its ability to colonize sufficient hardware. The faster each processor is, the fewer processes would be needed for the AI to quickly bootstrap itself to superintelligence. Yet another effect of a hardware overhang is to level the playing field between big and small projects 
by reducing the importance of one of the advantages of larger projects, the ability to afford more powerful computers. This effect, too, might increase existential risk. If larger projects are more likely to solve the control problem than to be pursuing morally acceptable objectives, there are also advantages to a faster takeoff. A faster takeoff would increase the likelihood that a singleton will form. If establishing a singleton is sufficiently important for solving the post transition coordination problems, it might be worth accepting a greater risk during the intelligence explosion in order to mitigate the risk of catastrophic coordination failures in its aftermath. Developments in computing can affect the outcome of a machine intelligence revolution, not only by playing a direct role in the construction of machine intelligence, but also by having diffuse effects on society that indirectly help shape the initial conditions of the intelligence explosion. The Internet which required hardware to be good enough to enable personal computers to be mass-produced at low cost, is now influencing human activity in many areas, including work in artificial intelligence and research on the control problem. This book might not have been written, and you might not have found it, without the Internet. However, hardware is already good enough for a great many applications that could facilitate human communication and deliberation and it is not clear that the pace of progress in these areas is strongly bottlenecked by the rate of hardware improvement. On balance, it appears that faster progress in computing hardware is undesirable from the impersonal evaluative standpoint. This tentative conclusion could be overturned, for example if the threats from other existential risks or from post-transition coordination failures turn out to be extremely large. In any case, 